Uh, I had a had a June uh, or a Jude moment uh, early this uh, or late this past week, maybe Wednesday or, or Thursday. And if you've been following with us the last few weeks, we've been in the book of Jude, and uh, we're just going to take a little bit of a shift for about three weeks, and then come to it after Pentecost Sunday. But as you remember, uh, Jude was deciding that he wanted to write to uh, the people there about the common salvation that they shared, and that he was just uh, uh, prompted or moved by the Spirit to. Uh, take a different focus and concentrate a little bit on those that were coming into the church with doctrines that were upsetting the church. And uh, so Jude entered into that letter. And I don't know whether my um, my turning has been prompted by the Spirit or prompted by the pizza that I had on Wednesday night. Um, but uh, we trust that the Lord will guide us as we move ahead. I think part of it was uh, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I thought it was helpful for us to reflect on um, our own response to God as we come to the Lord's table and as we prepare to uh, participate in these symbols of the Lord's death on our, behalf, uh, on our behalf. So I'm shifting gears and we're just going to look at Psalm 51. Um, uh, and we won't get through it all, but I want to spend at least three weeks uh, in the first part of it. So if your Bibles, um, take them and turn to Psalm 51. And I'm going to read not only the first four verses, but also the subscription um, that's over the psalm, or that's part of the introduction to the psalm. Uh, these are not um, part of the original manuscripts. Um, they've been added later, but they do help give context uh, to the particular psalms. And so Psalm 51 is probably one of the most familiar psalms that we um, have in our repertoire. We would all be familiar, I think, with Psalm 23. Some of us have memorized Psalm 1 and some various other psalms, but Psalm 51 is one that um, constantly, I think, comes before the life of the Christian. So let's read the, 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 the introduction to the psalm and then the first four verses uh, this morning. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. May God bless his word to us this morning. This uh, psalm is one that is placed directly in the context of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12 in particular, we are, um, we are brought to, uh, uh, we are shown the, Nathan the prophet as he comes to David and he takes him aside with uh, the word of the Lord that God has given to him. Nathan had been made aware of a situation in David's life. Uh, David had strayed from the paths of God as we sang. And he had become involved with a woman that was not his wife. And he had dealt in a way that was not according to God's will with the woman's husband. And David had really committed some terrible sins before God. If we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, which is the, uh, the, the lead up to 2 Samuel 12, we would find in 2 Samuel 11 uh, the picture of a king who is dominating every aspect of his life. 
The king seems to be in charge. He's, he's up on the, uh, uh, the palace rooftop. He's commanding that this person be brought to him and that that person uh, be dealt this way and that this person come. And it's one in which it, it seems like from chapter 11's point of view that the king is dominating. His word is in control. But if you were then to read Second Samuel chapter 12, you would get a different picture. There you would find that it's Yahweh and his word that dominates the verbal landscape. And after all that has gone on in chapter 11, we might expect words of retribution and judgment and even punishment. And there is some of that. But the dominant theme that we find woven through 2 Samuel chapter 12 is one of grace. One wrote that we have a sense that we have traveled beyond judgment in 2 Samuel 12 into the land of grace. I love that picture. We have traveled beyond judgment into the land of grace. I think we all want to build a home in the land of grace. What is grace? Grace is God's something for nothing when we don't deserve anything. Gift. It is what God gives to us above and beyond anything that we could deserve, anything that we could ask or imagine. And we see the grace, if we were to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, we would see the grace in the very first phrase that, that we have recorded there. And the phrase is simply this, And Yahweh sent Nathan to David. Without that reality, without the sending of Nathan to David, and without God's involvement in our lives, our lives would indeed be bleak and hopeless. But grace is something that pursues us. Grace is something that God sends our way. If you were to go back to 2 Samuel 11 again and account for all the times that the word send is used there, you would find the word used 11 times. And we find everybody sending somebody. David is sending for Bathsheba. Bathsheba is sending for David. David is sending for Joab. And we find that word used 11 times, as I said, in chapter 11. But when you come to chapter 12 of 2 Samuel... It begins with, now Yahweh sent Nathan to David. Beloved, that is the story of the Bible. That is the story of God's interaction in our lives and in our worlds. And one of the most famous verses and the most familiar verses to us is one that describes to us the descending love of God. For God so loved the world that he sent his beloved son, Jesus. God is ascending God. God is the one who comes to us and gives us gifts that we cannot receive in any other way. And so what is the greatest need of mankind? Our greatest need is that God send to us his mercy and grace and compassion and loving kindness. And we find that right off the, the top as Nathan comes to David. It's a psalm about repentance. It's a psalm about personal renewal, which comes from this deep inner conviction that has been brought about by the messenger of God, Nathan. Now, we don't have a lot of Nathans today. In fact, we don't have a lot of these individuals like Nathan that come into our life and speak directly and clearly to us. But every one of us has the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God dwells within us. Every one of us has the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God and the Word of God which are like Nathans to us. It is God's gift to us. God sends to us the Spirit to convict us. God sends His Word to us to instruct us. 
And so, in a similar fashion as David, we receive the sending mercy and grace of God through those two things. When the early church father, Chrysostom, remarked, I fear nothing but sin, he correctly identified sin as the greatest threat that any person ever faces. For months, David had lived with the knowledge of his actions. He had broken the tenth commandment by coveting his neighbor's wife. He had broken the Eighth Commandment by stealing her. The Seventh Commandment by committing adultery with her. The Ninth indirectly by trying to fool Uriah so that he would treat the coming child as his own. And the Sixth directly by liquidating Uriah at long range. David had spent almost a year ignoring what he had done. Although I'm sure his soul was in deep turmoil. It was only after Nathan came to him and said... You are the man, after his illustration, that David broke. And this psalm is the revelation of the brokenness of David. It's the way that David dealt with the messenger that God had sent to him. It reflects a a deep agonizing over the way that he had transgressed God and walked away from him. And it's an illustration for you and I on how we respond to the prompting of the Spirit of God and the Word of God that uncovers our lives to us. And so what's the response that we see from David as God speaks to him through Nathan? The first thing that we see is he casts himself upon God. That is our only hope of recourse. It's to cast ourselves upon the mercy of of God. He says, be gracious to me, O God, and have mercy upon me. He appeals to the, the disposition of God, to the character of God. David longed now to be free from the presence and the power of sin that had invaded his life. And his only recourse was to throw himself at the mercy and the grace of God. He was guilty before God and man. And his only hope now rested in the forgiveness of God. He was asking God to do something for him that he was unable to do for himself. He was entrusting himself to God and he was saying, God, be gracious to me, a sinner. Immediately, his focus turned away from himself to God and only what God could do for him. David's plea for mercy then is founded on the very character of God. Legally, he was in trouble. He stands contemned before a holy and righteous God. Guilty as charged, he says. But he also knows something about God. That God is gracious and compassionate. That God's loving kindness never fails. What does David need? He needs God to act on his behalf according to his loving kindness. That's the hesed of the Lord. We spent a few uh, opportunities when we were in Ruth talking about the hesed of the Lord, the kindness of the God towards us. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. But it's available to us. God's loving kindness is abundant. One of the, the passages in Scripture says, the loving kindness of, Lord, of the Lord uh, fills the earth. The earth is full of the loving kindness of God. We see that every day in the fact that the sun comes up and goes down, that the moon shines at night, that the rivers keep flowing, that the wind keeps going, that oxygen keeps at the right levels of what oxygen needs to keep at, that the stars keep in space, that the fish come back, that we have food in our tables. We see the loving kindness of God in its fullness every single day. And David reflected on that and he said, if God can be loving, kind, 
or full of loving kindness to the world he has made, surely he can be loving kind or full of loving kindness towards me. It's a great attribute of God. One of the prophets wrote, For thy loving kindness towards me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. It's the loving kindness of God that delivers us from disaster and oppression. It sustains our life. It counteracts God's wrath. It's the enduring, persistent, eternal way of God with His people. It endures. It never fails. David appeals then to this great God. He appeals to this characteristic of God, the loving kindness of God. Micah the prophet, I think, writes beautifully. He says, who is a God like you? Removing iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He doesn't hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. Do you hear that? He delights in faithful love. Even in the midst of David's nine months of horror and terror. Back of his mind, he had, God is gracious. God is full of loving kindness. God delights in mercy. And as David came out of that, he casts himself at the feet of God and pleads for his loving kindness. I wonder sometimes if the church has lost sight of the beauty of God's forgiveness. It's one thing for us to go through the emotions of prayer and of repentance and of ritual and even for some the acts of penance. It's quite another thing, though, for the forgiveness of God to seize our minds or to convulse our emotions, to shake us to our very core. Rarely do we respond as the Marquis of Argyle, who on the night before his execution claimed that God was just now saying to me, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And upon repeating those words, burst into tears and retired to a window to weep there. Instead, writes Dale Ralph Davis, we have lost the goosebumps on our souls. Having a God who passes over rebellion should make us shudder with joy. Beautiful word pictures. We have lost the goosebumps on our soul as we reflect on the forgiveness of God. Our souls should shudder with joy as we reflect on the forgiveness of God. He needs a God, or he needs God to act according to his loving kindness. But he also needs God to act towards him according to his compassion. Isn't that what we all need now? You know, I think there was that song that kind of goes, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. I sometimes think we could maybe sing, what the world needs now is compassion, sweet compassion. David appeals to the compassion of God. This is a motherly term. It's rarely used of men in the Bible. It's de- derived from a, a word group that comes from the womb. It uses, it's used to describe a mother's love towards her nursing baby. It's a deep love that's rooted in a natural bond that is created between a mother and her child. It's a deep feeling that involves compassion and pity and mercy. It's a feeling that's elicited when we think about the helplessness and the, and the, and the, the particularly um, helpless way of our children. And so our hearts go out to them. Our mercy goes out to them. Our compassion goes out to them. That is our great need, loved ones. It's for the compassion and mercy and loving kindness of God towards us. 
But it's not just what it's not just God that we need to do something on our behalf. There's also a response that we need to bring to the table. And we see this as David continues going on. as, As he then owns up to his own responsibility, he takes responsibility for his own actions and his sin. David's confession in these verses is rather jarring, both in its extent and in its impact upon his life. But it's also so helpful for us as God's children and for you who maybe are searching for how you might enter into a relationship with God. He uses three words, and you might have noticed them even in the first two verses, three words that reveal the depth of his sin. David had really come under a conviction when, the Nathan, when Nathan had spoken to him. He talks about his transgression, which is simply his rebellion against God. He talks about his iniquity, which is the way that he took the standards of God and twisted them for his good and for his benefit. He talked about his own sin, and sin, as we've talked about many times, is this broad word which simply means mis the mark or falling short of the mark. We know what God expects of us. We know what God asks of us and we come up short. And David recognized the full extent of his sin. But he also recognized the full extent of God's grace. Remember, we're talking about here the land of grace. We're talking about here this amazing um, reality that you and I have to live in this land. And so as David also reflects on the breadth of his rebellion against God, he also reflects on the breadth of God's grace towards him. And he uses three words to describe that. He talks about God wiping away any record of his sin. He talks about God laundering his soul so that it comes out clean. He talks about God dealing with the impurities of his soul so that all that's left is the perfect ore that God has placed there. And so that's the first thing that we see as we come into this passage. And it's something that you and I need to constantly wrestle with. He owns his own transgressions. He takes full and complete responsibility for it. We get a glimpse of this as we are ever to go to 2 Samuel. And you might do this on your own. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. After David, or Nathan had re, re, exposed David's sin, he says to him, you are the man. What is David's response? I have sinned against the Lord. In Hebrew, it's actually only two words. Short and simple. I have sinned against the Lord. Sometimes we have a really hard time with that. That's too easy. We're we're letting him off the hook. Where's the penance? Where's the proof of his forgiveness? Where, 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 where Where is this wallowing for a little while? Where is this pleading for God? Where is this agonizing before God? We're troubled. By a simple two-word statement, I have sinned against the Lord. One wrote, the words are very few, just as in the case of the publican in the Gospel of Luke. But that's a good sign of a thoroughly broken spirit. There's no excuse, no cloaking, no palliation of the sin. There's no searching for a loophole, no pretext put forward, no human weakness pleaded. He simply acknowledges his guilt candidly. And without prevarication. He doesn't blame others. Uh, Something we need to realize so quickly in our lives. 
He could have said, well, it's Bathsheba's fault. If she had not been on top of that Ruth bathing, none of this would have ever happened. Or he could have said, that's Job's fault. If Job just had have disobeyed me and not taken my message to the battlefront, then everything would be okay. Or, or he could have even said, well, God, it's your fault. After all, it's you who allowed me to get up on that roof. You could have stopped that. You could have stopped the, the, the enemies from killing Uriah. He doesn't do that. He doesn't blame anybody. He simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't include others either. He doesn't kind of come before God and, and say, well, Bathsheba is just as much to blame here as I am. Or he doesn't say, well, now Job is just as much at fault here as I am. He doesn't do any good. He simply says, I have sinned before the Lord. Both of these are our tendencies when dealing when our lives have been exposed before God. David's response was profound. I have sinned. The state of a man's heart is revealed in his response to the criticism of God's word. The state of a man's heart is revealed by his response to the criticism of God's word. Then his imagination takes over. And I, I, I come to appreciate this about David. He's got just a vivid imagination. And the first thing that he does and as all of this is taking place is he first asks that his transgressions be blotted away the way that a debt is erased from a, la- a ledger. And there's other pictures that maybe we'll, we'll bring to the point. The, the first thing, is, and he talks about his own revolt against the standard of God. And we've looked at this many times, so we won't spend any time there other than to say that transgression is our willful rebellion against God. And what David is recognizing is that when that happens, there's a note made of that. Because God is going to, um, we will have to give an account even for every word that we utter, the scripture tells us. So David is aware that for every action he commits, there is a note about that. And I'm sure he's thinking as he's praying, God, my transgression is before you. But you can wash it or you can blot it away as one erases ink from a ledger. And he might have been thinking about a practice when they had scrolls there, um, and they, they wrote on the scroll and maybe they wanted to reuse the scroll. So they'd take a damp sponge and they'd, they'd wash the scroll and it would become clean again. And there'd be no record of anything that was ever written on there. You know, we might like to think, and, and we don't even have these too much anymore, but, you know, whiteboards. And many of us have been in presentations where, where whiteboards have been used. And we've got those erasable markers. And on the whiteboards, you, you know, you write all the stuff that you want to write down. And then at the end of the presentation, somebody comes along with one of those um, easy erase things. And they, they just wipe away every presence of what has been there. It's not that great an illustration because sometimes there's still the stains of the blues and the greens and whatever. I was thinking maybe of a more modern one. We all have, most of us have computers. And you type something out. And then there's times when you can, you can do that, what is that function called where you, where you um, cut and paste? Or you, so you block it all in and you press delete and all of a sudden you have a white page there again. Or I have a cell phone. It's got a mind of its own. Silly thing. And I don't know why it does this, but randomly it deletes my inbox of any email. And I have no, but it's, there's nothing there. That's what David is asking God to do. Delete it. Take away every record. And God can do that 
because of his compassion and mercy, because of his steadfast love, and because of Jesus Christ. I love the imagination of David. The second thing that David says there is he acknowledges is before God. He says there that, that I have deviated from the standard, that my iniquity has gotten in the way. And iniquity, we've talked about this many times again, iniquity is the way that we tend to twist what God says. Well, that's not really what God says, and well, it really doesn't apply to me here. We're brilliant at that. And David recognizes that within his own heart. And he says, so what can we do about that then? And I don't know, maybe he was walking by the, by the brook that was you know, just outside of Jerusalem, and he might have seen some women there washing clothes. Because that's what God can do. He can take the stains on my soul and he can wash them away. It's a beautiful image. I mean, we're, we're confronted with this every day. If you have TV and you watch it, watch it. You see those uh, commercials, and they're for soap, and, you know, they, ours is the next greatest, latest soap, and it will make your whites whiter than white, and they have a sort of a semi-clean white, and then they have the one that they're, and it's white. And they can make your brighters, or your colors brighter. There's this, there's this cleansing that David is picturing. Do you know that when we transgress, there is a stain left on our soul? What can wash away that stain? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, David, as he fell before God, he somehow saw that stain in his heart. And he knew that there was no soap known to mankind that could deal with that stain. So he says, God, wash me clean. Beautiful image of how God comes in and does for us what we can't do for ourselves. And then the third image is an image which um, comes from the area of metallurgy. I don't know much about this at all. I just know the image that David comes up with. And David was a rich king. I'm sure from time to time he had gone into his own mint and he had watched the, the men at work there as they took the oars and as they heated them hot and as they removed the dross from those metals. He says, I've fallen short of the standard of God. There's these imperfections in me. And, and it's not that I'm all bad. It's not that, you know, that what God has created, there's nothing good in what God has created, but there's these imperfections in me. And, and I can't seem to rid myself of them. And so he says, cleanse me. He sees his sin as an impurity. We sing that song, Refiner's Fire. What do we, we want God to remove the impurities of our hearts and of our lives. And so David has this beautiful image of the, the, the refining fire of God burning in his soul, not to destroy him, but to cleanse him from all impurities. Loved ones, that is our great hope. That is the work that God does on our behalf. He erases the record of our sins. He washes the stain off of our soul. He cleanses us from those impurities that are so deep within us. That's the land of grace. That's the land that I want to walk in. 
That's the land that I want you to walk in. That's the land that we offer for you who may not know anything about this land yet. That's the land that is available to us because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Do you want the slate of your heart and conscience wiped clean? Have you rebelled against the standards of God? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. I, even I, he says, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. If you come to Christ, you can feel him take the eraser of the blood of Christ and wipe out any record against you. Do you see the stain in your soul today? Are there sin stains there that you cannot get out? Malachi writes that there is one coming who can wash away the stains of our sin. Jeremiah says, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity. You can come to God today for the first time, or if you're a believer, we come again and again and be washed by the blood of Christ. Is there dross in your life? Are there impurities that are detracting from the precious metal that is there in you? The Bible tells us that after Jesus died, he made purification for our sins. And that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what is our greatest need, loved ones? Our greatest need is for the compassion and mercy of God. For only he can forgive our sins. Only God can wipe the ledger clean. Only God can wash away the stain of my sin. Only God can cleanse me from my impurity. May we come to God today to receive what only He can give. Maybe for the first time, you can leave here with goosebumps on your soul. Get goosebumps just saying that. Goosebumps on your soul as you reflect on a deep compassion and mercy of God. Maybe you can leave here for the first time today experiencing the shudder of joy knowing that God has forgiven you again.